Again, delight to be here with you this evening in the worship of our triune God and enjoying the bounty of the house of God he has promised in the scriptures. And I want to invite you to turn this evening in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll take up a rather familiar, if deeply profound, passage in the first 11 verses of chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. Typically, June is a very busy stretch in most confessional reformed Presbyterian denominations. I have just come from the PCA General Assembly this week, uh, held in Memphis, which allowed me to stop by for a few days in Indianapolis before I return home. Uh, the OP denomination held, held there a week before, and the RPCNA, as you know, has a synod this week, which you have all been praying for. The unity of the church is an exceedingly precious reality. Our Lord Jesus Christ, right before his death in John chapter 17, specifically prayed for it. In fact, it's the one of the uh, first things he mentions as he set his mind on the believers who would believe the message down through the generations. Jesus prayed that, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, and I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Christian unity, the oneness of the church, is an exceedingly theological reality. And yet, even as our confession says in Westminster Confession chapter 25, at this very same time, the visible church, and particular churches therein, members, congregations, and denominations within the visible church, are more or less pure. According as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest church under heaven, our confession says, is all subject both to mixture and error. That's the reality we live in while we walk by faith on earth. Before the day of glory, the church of Jesus Christ will always be more or less pure. Never forget that, believers, there is no pure church on earth. How then do we strive for the purity and the unity and the maturity of the church at every level, locally, at presbytery, at general assembly or senate? And by the way, I wonder if you know why you use the word senate and what that means. I don't presume that everyone knows that word. It's just a Greek compound word. Uh, the prefix sun, uh, which means together as in synergy, and odos, which means uh, the way, as in odometer in your car, and combine, then the word yields the meaning meeting or assembly or together ways, literally. As you face that event in the life of your denomination, just ponder what produces unity, purity, maturity, in the church, how do you come together and grow and be sanctified even in this local congregation? The Apostle Paul gives us an answer in our passage. And Paul, whether addressing the most mundane matters in your Christian living or the most challenging issues affecting the whole body, the whole church, the Apostle Paul's solution to any and every problem in the church is to expound and to apply Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our passage contains 
what many seem to think uh, to have been an ancient creed or even a song used in the ancient church that confesses the two estates of Christ Jesus, his humiliation and his exaltation. And as we read the passage, you'll notice the parabolic structure of our passage. Jesus brought down into the depth of the lowest depth and then raised to the highest place of honor and glory. That sublime truth is presented as the very doctrinal ground for Paul's ethical appeal and for his exhortation. This is what Paul calls in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the mystery of godliness. The mystery that is unto godliness. Christ is the truth that is unto godliness of life in the church. And we're going to look at that passage this evening as a timely reminder to you um, as we uh, sit under God's word preached to us. So let's hear God's word. Our passage is chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 1 through 11. However, I would like to begin reading the scripture at the very beginning of this letter at chapter 1, verse 1, and read all the way through chapter 2, verse 13. And if you're not used to that kind of lengthy reading in the scriptures, I remind you again that Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. By God's will and design, public reading of scripture uh, is to be a vital integral part of worship service. Congregational hearing of the public reading of the scriptures uh, yet is is often a neglected element of worship. And so I do so purposefully. And let's hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll begin at Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. I hear God's word now. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and Deacons. Just as a side note, Paul is writing to a congregation that is just like us, writing to a church, to the saints together with the elders and deacons. That's every church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest and my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the, of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense and in truth or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by death or by whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one, one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Thanks be to God that he has spoken to us in his word. Well, let's briefly look to our God and pray before we sit under the preaching of the word. Let's pray together. A great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us as living stones fitted together as a, a new covenant temple, your spiritual house, so that we may abound with your praise. We pray that you would bind us and build us up in the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Bring us all the way to maturity and bring us in greater conformity uh, with, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the author and the finisher of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega. We once again look to you, O Lord, and ask that you would open your hands and satisfy the longings and desires of our souls and instruct us from your word in a way that sanctifies and transforms not only us, our own hearts, but uh, congregation and even presbytery and denomination. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul's great pastoral burden in this opening section of the letter is to see a certain unity of the mindset within the church as the saints live together. To see the congregation, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As it says in chapter 2, verse 2, to see the church being of the same mind, again the emphasis there, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Literally in the Greek, it says uh, being in one soul, being in full accord in terms of having one soul, uh, even as Jonathan and David in the Old Testament were closest, closely knitted in their fl- friendship and fellowship like that, Paul wants to see the church being of one soul. Being in full accord or in one soul means that you all have the same desires, the same appetites, the same goals, being united in devotion, in aspiration, being agreed in purpose in Jesus Christ, minding the same things, wanting the same things spiritually, and striving as one. And it is indeed a good and pleasant thing to see that kind of like-mindedness and one-mindedness congregationally. And yet, the Apostle Paul is very realistic. There are always going to be threats to this kind of harmony in the visible church. Paul mentions those in chapter 1 who purported to be servants of Christ, who preached Christ, but who did so for selfish, self-serving reasons. They were engaged in all kinds of kingdom labors and activities, but in the end, not serving the interests of Jesus Christ. In fact, as he says later in chapter 2, verse 21, Paul goes so far as to say they all seek their own interests, with the exception of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who exemplified for them the mind he wants to be exhibited in the church. And you know how later in chapter 4 of this letter, Paul had to call out even two particular individuals by name for being at loggerheads with each other, Yodia and Syntyche. Paul had to exhort them to be agreed in the Lord. This kind of phenomenon exists more or less in every congregation, in every church court, in every denomination. How do we... Uh, then become more of the same mind than more of one mind. What produces this kind of like-mindedness 
within the body in any communion that you may belong to, in any communion that is undoubtedly filled with people with different levels of maturity and understanding and peculiarities, uh, with different thoughts and interests and even agendas that may not always align with the thoughts and interests of Christ. What makes the church spiritually united? Well, it doesn't come in a vacuum. And here the Apostle Paul points us to Jesus Christ and unfolds before us three mindsets that I want you to see simply this evening. And children, if you are following this evening, I want you to see and just listen and think about three different minds that will be mentioned to you. It will be a simple thing. Three different minds and what those minds are teaching you to think. How those minds are telling you to think in the church. First then, I want you to see in verses 5 through 8, the mind of Christ, uh, which governed really the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry. His incarnation in his self-humbling all the way unto death. Paul unpacks for us in verses 5 through 8 the mind of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in verses 9 through 11, I want you to see the mind of God the Father towards his Son in exalting the Son of God who humbled himself. And then finally, we'll circle back and come back to verses 1 and 5, 1 through 5, and see finally the mind of the Christian then, the mind which the Spirit teaches us and impresses upon us, the mind that is to be shaped and molded and patterned after and brought in conformity with the mind of Christ and mind of God the Father. That really is the burden of our passage. What does it mean for us to be of one mind, having the same love and having the same soul and united in the same mind and of one accord? Paul doesn't really tell you, to, uh, tell you what to think. He simply shows you the mind exhibited in Christ and in God the Father, which in turn that will be reproduced in every believer, in every church by the work of the Spirit. So I want to explore these three minds. The mind of Christ, the mind of God the Father, the mind of the believer. First of all, consider then the mind of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through uh, 8. This mindset that is found in Christ, in his coming into the world as a man, in his self-abasement, in his self-humbling, in his giving up of himself uh, all the way to death on the cross. And you notice how Jesus in these verses goes down and down and down and down. The downward movement which Jesus dramatized in the upper room in John chapter 13 as he was about to enjoy the last meal with the disciples, how Jesus laid aside his outer garment and stooped low to wash the feet of his disciples as a dramatization of what he was to undergo. This mindset in this voluntary downward uh, descent from heaven's glory to the cursed death on the cross is captured in this section by two verbs. Look with me in verse 7. Paul says, he emptied himself. And verse 8, he humbled himself. Though he was in the form of God, though he was natively, essentially, unchangeably, eternally, and fully God, so that 
equality with God for Jesus was not some prize to be gained or a status to grasp for because it was already his inalienable possession. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped because he was fully God and yet, verse 7 says, he emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself in his incarnation, in his becoming man and coming into the world. He emptied himself of his outward divine glory by taking on human flesh. This is subtraction by addition. In the minus column was his divine glory that radiated through this entire universe that shined forth out of his person. Jesus did not empty his divinity. Once you start thinking that way, you are in the territory of heresy. Jesus was still fully God. He cannot ever be less than God. But his outward glory that belonged to him was purposefully hidden, obscured, emptied in his incarnation when in the plus column he put on weak human flesh. And having emptied himself, verse 8 says, he further humbled himself. Once being born, he humbled himself to be the servant of the Lord in order to engage in perfect, complete obedience to the will of God the Father. Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered all the way to the point of death, all the way to the cursed death on the cross. In this unfathomable act of self-giving, self-humbling of himself, the eternal Son of God became man, laid down his life, and died the accursed death, all out of love and obedience to the Father as the servant, and all out of love and grace towards sinners as their mediator and redeemer. If you ask the question, wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? A short catechism, answer 27, gives us a helpful summary of this state of Jesus' saving career. Jesus' humiliation consists first in his being born, and that in a low condition. He wasn't born in a hospital unit, but in a manger, dirty, smelly, lowly manger, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death on the cross, and in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Down, 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 down. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And this was all for your sake. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, though he was radiant with the outward glory, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Think of how astounding an act of condescension this really is. We just sang from Psalm 13 that says, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory 
above the heavens, who is like the Lord our God, seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And that picture of God's condescension down to earth has been fulfilled ultimately in Jesus' coming into the world. That would have been true if Jesus had come into the Garden of Eden, the unspoiled creation, into the unfallen world as a man, by reason of an infinite distance between the creator and creatures, that would have been an infinite act of condescension. But Jesus came into the world of sin and misery. He willingly faced a cursed death for the sake of uh, those sinful worms who Isaiah chapter 40 describes as less than nothing. For the likes of you and I, he came down and humbled himself all the way to death. And that, believers, is the mind of your Savior. Emptying what is natively his and further humbling himself all the way to death for the sake of others, laying down his own life, not for the godly, for the righteous, for the deserving, but for the ungodly, for sinners, for enemies, for the unworthy. That's the extent of Jesus' love and grace is for you. And Paul says, have this mind also among you. You need to put on the same mindset, close yourself with humility after the pattern of the Lord Jesus who emptied himself and humbled himself in the interests of your salvation and to seek your good and put on that same mindset. Be willing to decrease. Be willing to be made no and nothing. Put on humility. Be imitators of Jesus Christ. Count others as more significant than you. Seek and serve the interests of others even to the point of giving up and laying down your own life. So that's the first mind that we see, the mind of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, I want you to see the mind of God the Father in exalting uh, this son who humbled himself. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says, therefore, for that reason, God has hyper-exalted his son. God has super-exalted Jesus far above all things. And God has bestowed on Jesus a name that is above every name. The Father has one singular desire from all of eternity. And God the Father's desire, his mindset, concerns his Son, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. And that desire, that mindset, is to give glory and honor to his beloved Son. It is to so exalt his Son, Jesus above all things, that he might be preeminent over all things. It is to bestow upon him the superlative name, the divine name Yahweh, Jesus is Lord. If you think about the name given Jesus, Jesus was a name given at his birth. Father has bestowed upon him a superlative name, the name of God himself, so that as God-man, Jesus in his exaltation might be revealed to all creation as Lord of lords and King of kings. The Father's desire is to bestow on Jesus that honor and glory so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father and all may declare Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Father has entrusted all authority and power to Jesus 
we have a risen and exalted Savior who is endowed with all power and authority so that he may give life to whom he will in the present time and to judge the world on the last day. And nothing delights our God more than to see his Son thus exalted and enthroned upon the praises of his people and becoming the focus of worship by this entire created universe, even his enemies coming trembling before him and made his footstool, bowing their knees and confessing that Jesus is Lord. That is one singular desire that Father has. That is the mind of God. What fills the mind of God ultimately is the exaltation of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember this incident in the Old Testament book of Esther? Uh, King Ahasuerus in the perishing kingdom Remember the marvelous work of providence in answer to the prayers of God's people. Out of blue, had a sleepless night and began reading through his own royal record, his own uh, royal record, which is a, a comical picture if you stop and think about it. You have to fall asleep so you read about yourself. And Ahasuerus discovered that Mordecai the Jew had foiled the assassination attempt, but that act had never uh, gone rewarded. That act had gone unrewarded for many years. And just as Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the adversary and the enemy was coming into the royal court with the very design of hanging Mordecai on the tree, on the gallows he himself had built for that very purpose. Do you remember how Ahasuerus asks Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, thinking that it would be for himself, for he had been already promoted as number two man in the kingdom of Perisha, proposed a program of honor. Let that man be clothed with king's robes and set on the king's horse and given a public parade through the city square so all may see. And all of a sudden, the tables were turned if you recall the story of Esther, it was Mordecai who was thus honored with Haman, the enemy himself, leading the procession in almost a mini transfiguration of a sort. This ordinary, unrecognizable, lowly servant of the king, Mordecai, who sat by the gate for about half a day, about quarter of a day, for a very short time, Mordecai was, as it were, transfigured into a man, clothed with glory, crowned with honor, sat on the king's horse, paraded through the city square for all to see and behold the king's honor. And in a much greater way, more permanently, we see the ultimate answer to that question that has been ringing throughout the pages of Scripture since the days of Esther, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the Father has shown us what he has done. He has exalted Jesus to his right hand. He has given unto him the Spirit, so that the Son may pour out the Spirit upon the church. It's because the Father loves the Son and delights in him. God the Father hyper-exalted his Son. And that's the mind of God, believers. The greatest theologian, the one who really knows God, that is, to, that is to say, every spiritually minded believer will always therefore make much of the Lord Jesus. 
great theologians will always make much of the Lord Jesus. And Paul himself is doing that to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I count all things at a loss uh, as a refuge because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Savior. What does it mean for you then to think after God's thoughts? What does it mean for you to be clothed with the mind of God the Father? It means that the whole of your ambition is channeled toward this one thing, that Christ might be glorified and increase, that the cry of Psalm 24, open the gate, you ancient doors, and let the King of glory come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Mighty, the Lord Mighty, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That glorious cry of ascension and exaltation would be ringing true in your own heart, in the portals of your heart. And the question simply to you is, does your life, does your mindset, does your thinking agree with God's logic that Jesus Christ should thus be exalted in your life, in the life of this congregation, in the life of every church court, So Paul shows us something of what fills the mind of God. Let the exalted Lamb of God be the central focus of the life of the church. Take every thought captive to serve and obey the exalted King and Savior. Make this your greatest ambition in life, to see Jesus increase. And that naturally leads to the third mindset in our passage. And children, if you're still following with me, we thought about what Jesus thinks and what God thinks, and this one is what we think. What then thirdly is the Christian mind? What is it to be the mindset found in every believer in every church? Well, it's exactly what we have already seen. It's the mind of the Spirit which is revealing unto you the mind of the Father and reproducing in you the mind of the Son, the mind that you need to learn and to put on and to display, and to put into practice the mind which you need to work out with fear and trembling as he himself works in you is the mind that is already revealed to you in the gospel and given to you in union with the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, let that be the model and the pattern. Let its imprint be in all of us. Be of one mind, Paul says, let this mind be in you, the plural, which is also in Christ. And because this is in Christ, therefore you already have it. That's what it means to be united to the Lord Jesus. All that Christ possesses, you have as believers because you have all the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ given to you by faith because you are united to the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, let this mind found in Christ also be in you. So that means you walk in humility towards others. That means you count others more significant and look to the interest of others. Like Jesus, you walk in obedience to the Father and as Jesus has been exalted, as God has delighted to honor and exalt his Son, then after God's own mind, you make it your own goal to worship and magnify Christ. Consider how much the Father delights to exalt his Son. 
and consider how much the son self-givingly and self-sacrificially served the interest of his people, people whom he was not ashamed to call his brothers. But going back to the very beginning of our passage, you notice there is a precondition, but rather, or rather a presupposition to this particular exhortation. If you look in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, in the Greek, this is one long single Greek sentence. And it begins with a series of ifs in verse 1. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, Paul sets it forth as though it's a precondition to that exhortation. And if you slow down and read again verse 1, it should sound familiar to you. If your mind is truly Bibeline, like John Bunyan's mind is, does it not sound like the gospel benediction that you already possess as children of God? The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that have been poured out into your life. This is not so much a question of if, but Paul is really saying, since you have these things, since there is comfort in uh, Christ, and encouragement in Christ, comfort from the love of God, participation in the Spirit, therefore be of one mind. If these things are truly present in you, and since these things, these blessings of salvation you already enjoy, Paul says, then indeed be of the one mind. And that's really the burden of our passage. You are in Christ. You are adopted by God the Father. Family likeness is being produced within you. And therefore, be of the same mind, the mind that's been revealed to you in Jesus Christ. Let me apply this to you specifically, elders who are among you. What does it mean for you to put on the mind of Christ in your calling and labor? What does it mean for you to seek the interests of the sheep for whom Jesus Christ humbled himself. What does it mean, as we heard this morning, for you to show love towards the saints as you seek to love the Lord Jesus? And scripture has a specific command to you to feed the flock which he has purchased with his blood, or deacons here among you. Those of you who by calling and by vocation and by office are called to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And if you did not know that, do know that because in the kingdom of God, it is servants who are the greatest and you have that privilege by your office. Deacon is not some second-class office in the church. What does it mean for you to put on this mindset that Christ has revealed for you? Or you all the more work diligently, look after the interests and physical needs of others, knowing that Christ is the chief deacon, chief servant. Or give yourself afresh to the work with a mind of Christ, with all the encouragement you have from the Lord. Or the saints and members here in this congregation, what does it mean for you to be of one mind and striving with one mind side by side? What does it mean for you to put on the mind of Christ and mind of God the Father? It means you look out for one another. You are willing to lay down your life for the welfare and well-being of your fellow believers. 
means that you humble yourself. You prefer one another. And we can go on and on at every level of the church, presbytery, synod, denomination, the whole worldwide church. The Spirit says, walk together in like mindedness, for it is a gracious gift of God to you in Jesus Christ. And put on this mind, then go on living. And you can only do that when you first believe in Jesus and when you come to know him. It's striking when Jesus healed the uh, garrison demoniac, the one demon possessed and possessed by the legion. When Jesus finally healed him from his uh, ravaging maniac insanity, when Jesus brings him out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of light, we read this description in the gospel that he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Isn't that what salvation has done for you? It's such a picture of what happens to all of us when we come to know Jesus Christ. Uh, You are as a congregation in the morning studying through the book of Romans. Really, if you think about the book of Romans and the exposition of salvation, these are really bookended. We can see that thread by what happens to the mind. In judgment, when we are in Adam, we, like with the rest of the world, were given over to a depraved mind in Romans chapter 1, darkened in our understanding, walking in the futility of our own minds, seeking after our own selfish interests. But in salvation, when we are united to Jesus Christ, Paul says our mind is being renewed and we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that's what happened to all the believers united to the Lord Jesus. That's what the church has been given, the renewal of the mind, the new mind. And Paul says, put on that mind already revealed and given to you, and with that mind, set your mind on things that are above, the mind of Jesus Christ, the mind of God, the mind of the Spirit being reproduced in the church. And Paul says that is a secret to church Unity, and may we become increasingly of the same mind, indeed, with one mind, live together to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the goodness and the lavishness of your provisions for all that we need for life and godliness. And as we are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that out of his riches, you save and sanctify your church. We do pray for your blessings upon this congregation, upon all the communions of the Lord Jesus in the like-minded faith. How we praise you for the precious unity of the Spirit and help us to be eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Pray that you would help us to put away that which belongs to the flesh that looks after our own interests and help us by the help of your Spirit and by the grace of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that glorifies Christ and honors you and exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, So pray, Lord, that these things would be abundantly produced uh, in our own midst. And we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.